When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Prism of the Past, a semi-weekly series all about historical events, people, and situations from the fascinating to the forgotten. I'm the Illuminati, and today I wanted to talk about Judy Garland and her tragic history in the movie industry. I've already talked about Shirley Temple in a separate episode, and I think that both Shirley Temple and Judy Garland's stories can serve as examples of how glamorous old Hollywood was not really as glamorous as it seems. Today's episode will mention sexual assault, though I will warn you all again when that moment arises. In the meantime, let's start with who Judy Garland was at an early age before her rise to stardom. Garland was born Frances Ethel Gum on June 10th, 1922 in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Frances hadn't been wanted by her parents at the time. They contacted a family friend and medical student, Marcus Rabwin, to ask for advice about terminating the pregnancy. However, abortion wasn't permitted at the time and Rabwin told Frank and Ethel Gum that it was not only illegal, but it could put Ethel's life at risk. And so Frances Gum was born. Judy's parents were vaudevillains, in other words, performers. Vaudeville could be burlesque comedy, song and dance, theater, you name it. Judy's parents loved the stage and they wanted her to love it too. By the age of two and a half, Judy made her theatrical debut in Grand Rapids singing Jingle Bells. As she would later state, quote, the only time I felt wanted was when I was a kid when I was on stage performing, end quote. The family's life in Grand Rapids didn't last though. And by 1926, they were moving to California. Some of my sources don't mention why, whereas others claim that this was because rumors were spreading about Frank's affairs with young men and teenage boys. Being gay was unacceptable at the time, but I'm far more alarmed with the fact that the source specifically says boys. In others, he says he was caught in a sex scandal with a male usher. Some say he had affairs with young men, still referencing them as men. And I I just have no idea how young these people were. I can understand why Frank would feel the need to hide his sexuality back in the 20s though but hopefully he wasn't actually with any teenagers at the time. As for young Judy, their strained marriage took a toll on her. Later in life, Garland said, as I recall, my parents were separated and getting back together all the time. It was very hard for me to understand those things. And of course, I remember clearly the fear I had of those separations. Judy wasn't alone though, dealing with her tumultuous home life. She had two older sisters, Mary born in 1915 and Virginia born in 1917. It said that both Mary and Virginia were talented performers and Mary, the eldest, was only 12 years old when the trio auditioned at famous nightclubs, according to my source. In 1928, the Gum sisters enrolled in a dance school run by Ethel Megrin, proprietress of the Meglin Kitties Dance Troupe. They appeared with the troupe at its annual Christmas show. 
Though the Meglin Kitties, they made their film debut in 1929 called The Big Review, where they performed a song and dance number called That's the Good Old Sunny South. This was followed by appearances in two Vitaphone shorts the following year, A Holiday in Storyland featuring Garland's first on-screen solo and The Wedding of Jack and Jill. In 1934, the trio, who by then had been touring the vaudeville circuit as the Gum Sisters for many years, performed in Chicago at the Oriental Theater with George Jessel. He encouraged the group to choose a more appealing name after Gum was met with laughter from the audience. According to theatrical legend, their act was once erroneously billed at the Chicago Theater as the Glum Sisters. The name Garland was said to have been chosen by the comedian George Jessel, and the first name Judy was chosen from the popular 1934 Hoagy Carmichael song. Once Frances Gum became Judy Garland, her life actually began to change. Also, please note that there will be brief mentions of sexual assault and harassment in this next upcoming portion, so that's a heads up. In 1935, Judy signed with MGM. According to my source, Teenage Garland would go on to find fame in more than two dozen films for the studio, including the Andy Hardy series with co-star Mickey Rooney. Due to her diminutive stature, she stood at at least four foot, 11 and a half inches tall and cherubic face, Garland was often cast as characters younger than her real age. Yet despite her successes, Judy was still treated incredibly poorly. Ethel, Judy's mother, was the real Wicked Witch of the West, according to Judy. She introduced her to pills that would ramp up energy and then downers to help her sleep when Judy wasn't even 10 years old. Eltha would stand in the wings and supposedly tell her daughter, quote, you get out and sing or I'll wrap you around the bedpost and break you off short, end quote. Since Judy was apparently overweight at the age of 13, she wasn't permitted to eat anything aside from chicken broth and cottage cheese. She was even prescribed amphetamine-based diet pills. I'm not sure how overweight Judy was, but considering Hollywood's rigid standards, I doubt she was actually overweight to begin with. Apparently, MGM studio head Louis B. Mayer would actually have an entire network of informants making sure Judy stuck to her diet, because that sure sounds healthy for a 13-year-old. Other sources even say that her diet also consisted of black coffee and cigarettes. Just as disturbing, if not more so, during these early years, Judy was also subjected to sexual harassment and proposition by studio executives, including Mayer's himself. It said he would grope her in his office and when she was singing, he placed his hand on her breast and tell her she sang from the heart. I often thought I was lucky, observed Judy, that I didn't sing with another part of my anatomy. That scenario, a compliment forwarded by a grope, was reported many times until, grown up at last, Judy put a stop to it. Mr. Mayor, don't you ever, ever do that again, she finally had the courage to say. I just will not stand for it. He cried. How can you say that to me, to me who loves you, he asked Garland, who described her scorn for him decades later in her unpublished memoir, writing that it's amazing how these big men who've been around so many sophisticated women all their lives could act like idiots. These early MGM days massively affected Judy. They created a lifelong struggle with addiction, body image, mental health, largely fueled by the studio's determination to make her a star. Around this time, Judy's father also passed away and her mother remarried. It said that she hated her stepfather, though not much is said of their relationship. Her father's passing affected her as well, with one documentary claiming that Judy said she was alone with no one at my back at this time. Between the pills, her cruel mother, and her father's passing, Judy was going through a lot for just a 13-year-old. A few years later, she would only have more on her plate when she was featured as Dorothy in the 1939 film, The Wizard of Oz.
Apparently, some of the actors that played Oz's munchkins would sexually harass her by putting their hands up her dress, and she had to lose weight for the rule and have her waist corseted so she appeared younger. And she even had to have her nose affixed with prosthetics. One assistant recalls Judy as having her bosom taped down and says that she was often called Little Hunchback by Mayer. Despite this, Judy was massively successful. She hit top 10 box office prominence. She co-starred in numerous other musical pictures like Strike Up the Band, Babes on Broadway, Girl Crazy, and she played title roles in Little Nellie Kelly. All of you, I'd like to be dancing with all of you. Zigfield Girl. I'm always chasing rainbows. And presenting Lily Mars. Judy seemed to have it all, but the immense pressure was taking a toll on her. Judy Garland met David Rose at a radio broadcast when she was just 17 years old. David was 12 years her senior, but that didn't matter to Judy. They were married when she was 19 years old anyway. MGM founder Mayer and her mother Ethel were opposed to the relationship, though other sources say that Ethel eventually came around. Judy fell in love easily, and some attribute that to her wanting to find a man who would find her beautiful and make her feel wanted, considering that she wasn't seen as a classic beauty by Hollywood. Their marriage didn't last though, even if the split seemed to be amicable. Garland later admitted that though she was a grown-up woman according to the calendar, she was no more than 12 or 13 emotionally, not ready for the responsibilities of marriage. When I found myself in that big house with him, it was frightening, she said. I didn't know anything about cooking or keeping house. I was very vague and quite impractical. Except for their shared interest in music, Rose was her exact opposite. Only 31, he had the temperament and habits of a much older man, whereas Garland was vivacious, fond of parties, nightclubs, and dancing. Rose was quiet, reserved, and couldn't dance. They simply weren't a match. However, as is the case with much of Judy's life, not everything is quite so black and white. In 1941, Judy discovered she was pregnant. She was eager to be a mother, but Ethel, Mayer, and Rose all argued against this and pressured Judy into getting an abortion. Judy told one of her friends that after her pregnancy was terminated, the marriage was never the same. Something was gone, she said. One documentary primarily places the blame on Ethel, while others say that the MGM executives at the time were continually on the campaign to pull them apart. For example, Garland was moved to a less desirable table at the Oscars and pelted with rumors about Rose after she was married. Whether or not it was Ethel, MGM, or Rose that pressured her into having an abortion, the behavior is just as disgusting. No one should be pushed into such a thing, and I can only imagine how that stuck with Judy. Unfortunately, this wasn't all unheard of at the time. Studios wanted stars to be controlled, especially women, and in 1922, Will H. Hayes collaborated with studios to make morality clauses into contracts. Vanity Fair states, quote, according to Peterson, rumor had it that blonde bombshell Jean Harlow couldn't wed William Powell because MGM had written a clause into her contract forbidding her to marry. A wife couldn't be a bombshell after all. When Harlow became pregnant from the affair, she called MGM head of publicity, Howard Strickling in a panic. Shortly thereafter, according to EJ Fleming and the Fixers, Eddie Mannix, Howard Strickling, and the MGM publicity machine, Mrs. Jean Carpenter entered Good Shepherd Hospital to get some rest. She was seen only by her private doctors and nurses in room 826, the same room she had occupied the year before for an appendectomy. In the 1930s, vamp and man-eating thespian Tallulah Bankhead got abortions like other women got permanent waves, biographer Leah Israel quips in Miss Tallulah Bankhead. When virtuous singing sensation Jeanette MacDonald found herself pregnant in 1935, MGM studio boss Louis B. Mayer told Strickling to get rid of the problem. MacDonald soon checked into a hospital with an ear infection, according to Fleming's The Fixers, end quote. Judy Garland was a victim to this attitude as many other women in Hollywood were. Me in St. Louis. 
She did find love again though with Victor Minnelli in 1945 after he directed her in Meet Me in St. Louis. It's said that Judy was absolutely beautiful and breathtaking in the movie, not the ugly duckling she'd been considered to be among the other stars at MGM, and she loved him for that. Vincent Minnelli though was gay. Some speculate that Judy may have been drawn to gay men because of her relationship with her father. And while I don't really wanna read into anyone's sexuality much here, it's said that there were signs such as an early relationship with sculptor and window dresser, Lester Gabba. There's a pirate known to fame. Black Moncoco was the pirate's name. During their relationship, Vincent directed Judy in a new movie, Pirates, that was supposed to be a massive success, but flopped. This too put strain on their marriage, as well as a close relationship Vincent Minnelli had with Judy's co-star during the film, according to my source. After the success of Me and My Girl, Freed urged Minnelli to find a suitable vehicle to pair Judy with Gene Kelly. The pirate seemed like the right choice for both stars and director. The film was to feature Grand Camp, an element that hadn't been used in Hollywood films up to them. Unfortunately, Judy's enthusiasm for the project began to decline as soon as shooting started. She felt that it was the wrong vehicle for her. Moreover, she worried that Kelly, who was a flashier part, would dominate the film. As usual in times of crisis, Minnelli threw himself into the work with excessive determination. Minnelli was developing the most intense professional association he had ever had with any actor. Their talents complemented each other well with one idea melding into another. My approach is less esoteric and more gusty, Kelly told Minnelli. Yours is evanescent and ethereal. Judy might've been paranoid, but other members of the crew noticed too the crush that Minnelli was having on Kelly. This was evident by their behavior at parties given by the Kellys. Judy felt that Minnelli was standing too close to Kelly, always embracing him when they talked and looking straight into his eyes. Judy began to worry that her husband was having an affair with Kelly. Some sources, such as Emmanuel Levi's Minnelli biography, even theorize that Vincent chose to become bisexual, even though that's not really how it works. Judy and Vincent did have a daughter together, Liza, but the marriage ended when she found him in bed with a man they worked with. Perhaps it was a combination of this, her impending divorce and continuing drug use and the postpartum depression believed she suffered from, but all of this culminated into one hell of a nervous breakdown. Judy suffered her nervous breakdown in the late 40s. This was the first time she was known to have harmed herself. This attempt on her life led to Judy to stay at the Austin Riggs Center for Treatment, but because of her troubles, she couldn't keep up with her work on Pirates. It was the first film she'd been in since Wizard of Oz not to make a profit. With her health in rapid decline and missing filming days throughout her last MGM film summer stock, her career floundered. One source while discussing Judy's part on Annie Get Your Gun said that Judy had been promised a vacation but was coaxed into preliminary work. The vacation never happened and director Busby Berkeley drove everyone on set into the ground. On the second day of shooting, Judy's co-star Howard Keel fell off his horse. His absence naturally shifted the burden of filming to Judy. Her first scenes shot for the film were devoted to the doing what comes naturally sequence on the exterior set of the Wilson Hotel. She first worked with dance director Robert Alton on the rehearsals and staging. Reportedly, on the first day of filming for the sequence, Berkeley began shouting at the crew. This upset Judy enough to prompt her to leave the set for the day, feigning illness. Allegedly, when she saw some of the dailies a few days later, she got up, went over to a water cooler and downed a handful of Benzedrins. Judy told Charles Walters, the director, that she didn't have the energy anymore, but he insisted they carry on. All right, come on, the man's waiting on you. That's right, here they are. They look a little dusty, don't they? Well, we're in business together. I pop them, she plucks them, she picks them, and she pulls them. Well, what's a little boy do? Little Jake? 
Folks are dumb where I come from. They ain't had any learning. Surviving footage shows that Judy was right and the fatigue and lack of Garland sparkle showed in her face. She had multiple unfinished films, in fact, or at least there were multiple times that she was replaced, considering just how many movies she'd been working on at one time. The film, The Barclays of Broadway, was a follow-up to the huge success of Easter Parade. And according to my source, the plan was to have Judy reprise the song here. Unfortunately, after the strain of working on Easter Parade and immediately recording and filming, I Wish I Were In Love Again for the words and music, Judy was completely exhausted. Going into another strenuous production schedule for another high-profile big-budget musical, the pressure that went along with it was more than Judy could weather. She lasted through a month of rehearsals and preliminary work before MGN reluctantly replaced her with Ginger Rogers. Due to this, Judy never recorded any of the songs or filmed any footage. Between all of her consistent absences, MGM simply couldn't work with her anymore. More alarmingly, after cutting her own throat in 1950, all the headlines read that she had slashed her throat in a fit of anguish after a studio quarrel. In actuality, the papers dramatized the severity of the wound in the headlines, but it was clear Judy needed professional help. Her husband at the time, Vincent, would later say that he believed the studios could have been more patient with her. After all, she'd made over 30 movies and $100 million for MGM. They could have helped her more than they did. But between this incident and Judy being late to work, MGM was at the end of their rope. Eventually, Judy was released from her MGM contract. Others say she was fired. Regardless of how mutual this was, Judy and MGM were no more after 15 years together. Judy remained in the entertainment industry though. Her concerts were a sensation and Rufus Rainwright, singer-songwriter, had described her arrangements as a workout. She recorded more than 80 sides for Decca Records between 1935 to 1953. She dealt close to 300 national radio appearances. Despite having left MGM, Judy continued to find stardom and she made several major cross-country tours to entertain stateside servicemen and women during World War II. Around this time in 1951, Judy began an affair with the man that would later become her third husband, Sid Luft. Luft was said to be fantastic for her career, but awful for her personally. He took over as her manager and architected television specials for her and shows at Carnegie Hall. So what if movies didn't want her? She could always sing, Luft once told the Telegraph. Other sources claim that the beginning of their relationship was marred. And in 1951, Judy was yet again pressured into having an abortion for the sake of her career. There was still an immense strain on her at this time. And also in 1951, articles were published about Judy having collapsed at the Palace Theater in New York City. One archive from the New York Times reads, Ms. Garland had appeared during the first part of last night's performance and then reappeared after an extended intermission. She completed three numbers and then asked for water. She appeared ill to members of the audience, but she seemed determined to go on with the performance. Finally, she walked off the stage. Dr. Salmon said that the actress had gone on stage during the afternoon performance against his advice. He said she had been under severe strain while appearing at the theater twice a day and that he had been seriously concerned over her condition. The physician said that because of her regard for the theater tradition of the show must go on, Miss Garland had appeared during the afternoon and attempted to complete the evening performance. Because of her condition, Dr. Salmon or an assistant had been in constant attendance at the theater during her appearances. The audience adored Judy. It said that those who watched her were in awe because she truly felt the song she was singing and they were captivated by a Judy that the movie screens just couldn't do the justice to. She toured in the UK, was booked for 19 weeks at the Palace Theater where she collapsed and later received a special Antoinette Perry or Atoni Award for the Palace show. As for her personal life, once Judy and Sid were officially married in 1952, Judy gave birth to another daughter, Loma, and in 1955, a son, Joey. The same day she gave birth to Joey, the Oscars were taking place and Judy had been nominated for her performance in A Star Is Born. 
Judy's performance resonated with a lot of different elements within male gay subcultures, and she became an icon among the gay community for this movie. One fan quoted in the book, Heavenly Bodies, Film Stars and Society stated, her audience, we, the gay people could identify with her, could relate to her in the problem she had on and off stage. Judy, when asked if she minded having such a large gay following said, I couldn't care less, I sing to people, or that they were her people, her audience, and she loved them. By this time, many believed she would win an Oscar, but Grace Kelly won instead. One possible reason for this could have been that many theaters at the time complained that the film's three hour runtime was far too long and trimmed 27 minutes worth. That left the movie with a noticeable plot hole in the storyline and audiences seemed to grow disenchanted with the film. Judy still did well in her singing career though. It's not as if she vanished from the stage. She made her television debut launch with the Ford Star Jubilee series on CBS and drew the largest audience in TV history for a special program. In 1956, she returned to the Palace Theater in New York, performed before Queen Elizabeth in London in 1957, and in 1959, became the first popular singer to appear at New York Metropolitan Opera House. She even toured in Paris, Amsterdam, Germany, and across England. Yet Judy's major film years were behind her, her massive roles having run out, her marriage to Sid Luft had run out as well. According to Luft, Garland's substance abuse continued throughout and strained their union to the point that in 1962, they were living virtually separate lives. Often high on medication, Luft wrote their young children wouldn't realize Garland was stoned when she spent time with them. One family friend later interviewed for a documentary about Judy stated that on one occasion, Judy came over for a dinner party. All the pills in one of her prescription bottles were missing. Judy, on the other hand, claimed that Luft was abusive and dependent on alcohol. Others say he was a gambler, betting on horse racing with other people's money, Judy's money usually. One article from the LA Times talks about secret recordings, tapes made by Sid Luft while he was on phone calls with Judy's business associates. And the article reads, as their marriage began to disintegrate, Luft was fielding the blame for much of the singer's financial trouble. To ensure himself against negative claims, he began taping his personal conversations without the consent of the other party. What is most revealing about the recordings is in the way in which Garland is discussed as if she is aware she is an object instead of a person. In one October 1963 call with CBS programming executive Hunt Stromberg Jr., Luft is told about a very, very unpleasant and unfortunate night on the set of Garland's musical variety show. I'm aware that when you get into that state, you're not responsible for some of the things you do, Stromberg said. But if someone has leprosy, said, it is highly regrettable, but you stay away from them. Certain people are getting her too much junk, Left responded, alluding to Garland's pill addiction. It just reaches a point where you say, ah, it, the executive said. Somewhere along the line, she got mixed up, Left lamented. Maybe it was partially my fault. Maybe uh, I mixed her up. I don't know. Left goes on to admit he was enabling her drug problem, coming up with a plan to employ an MGM doctor for the length of the shoot to monitor her and keep her on even keel. The roller coaster of addiction continued to upend the marriage. At one point, Left said, Garland expressed a desire to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, but the couple made it to only one meeting in Pasadena. Later, they visited Narcotics Anonymous in a room lit by spooky lights that had the atmosphere of an opium den. Garland did not take to the environment, he said, declaring it is enough to make a person want to stay bombed forever and heading to the then popular restaurant Romanov's for a cocktail. They divorced in 1965 and though Left denied the abuse allegations, Judy received custody of their children. Obviously, I can't know for sure what happened between Sid and Judy, and considering that it seemed like there were multiple addictions involved here, it only serves to make things a bit more complicated. Needless to say, it didn't end well. The relationship had deteriorated and Judy was ready to move on. Around this time, she said that she was always being painted a more tragic figure than I am, and that she was awfully bored with herself as a tragic figure. 
But Judy was a tragic figure to many. She had already nearly died from her struggles with addiction. And in 1959, Judy had taken enough alcohol and pills to severely compromise her liver. Walking into Garland's hospital room, a close friend overheard a clutch of doctors discussing her condition. One of them turned to the friend. I have to tell you the truth, the doctor said. I don't think she's going to make it. She made it. She had the constitution of an army, Garland's daughter, Lorma Luff says. She just knew she had to keep going. But three weeks later, after 20 quarts of fluid had been drained from her body, her lead physician told Garland, for the rest of your life, all your physical activity must be curtailed. You are a permanent semi-invalid. It goes without saying that under no circumstances can you ever work again. Garland fell back onto her pillows. Whoopee, she cried weakly. Though she rested and recovered for a short time, it didn't last. She needed the money and the audience adored her. Judy went back to recording, back to work, sang encore after encore, and by the early 60s, she was queen again. But the cycle seemed to repeat itself. According to Vanity Fair, in February, 1962, Garland was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for her cameo role in Stanley Kramer's Judgment at Nuremberg. That same month, a CBS TV special she did with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin was a smash hit leading the network to sign her to a four season, $24 million variety series. But she ran afoul of her Sunday night competition, NBC blockbuster Bonanza, and the CBS president, James Aubrey Jr., who turned out to detest her. And we know the rest of the sad saga. She couldn't stay away from pills and her health worsened, as did her love life. Before her divorce to left was even finalized in 1965, Judy found someone new. She met a man named Mark Herron, who produced two of her shows at the London Palladium in 1962. They quickly married in Vegas when her divorce was complete, but within five months, the couple separated. Judy said that he'd been abusive, but Heron claimed he, quote, only hit her in self-defense, end quote. Other sources such as her former agent don't mince words and say that at this point in her life, Judy was a demented, demanding, supremely talented drug addict. She was in a constant state of drama and near hysteria, even setting fire to her own dressing room on one occasion. In 1966, a year after separating from Heron, Judy met a nightclub manager, Mickey Deans, when he delivered drugs to her hotel room. This relationship was, well, you know, a wreck. Dean supposedly forced her to perform, and when she was unwell and Liza Minnelli, Judy's eldest daughter, was caught up in the chaotic lifestyle. At this time, she'd gone to 14 different schools, her childhood marked by moving from one house to another. Liza followed in her mother's footsteps as well, entering the entertainment industry at a very young age. However, by no means do I want to say that Judy was a horrible mother whatsoever. Liza said she had a small time growing up and by no means do I think that Judy was half as cruel as her mother Ethel had been. Even so, years of substance abuse had weakened Garland's body and voice. And by 1968, she was also in dire financial straits due to mismanagement and embezzlement of her money. She'd spent the prior decade continuing to experience extreme highs. Her 1963 television variety show was well-received and very public lows. She was booed at a 1964 concert in Melbourne, Australia. Personal debts and money owed to the IRS resulted in Garland settling her Brentwood, California home at a below value price. And in an effort to raise further funds, she accepted an offer to perform a five-week run at the shows of the Talk of the Town nightclub in London. Reviews at this time said she was the broken remnant of a gaudy age of showbiz, which believed that glamour was good enough substitute for genius. She was called the walking casualty by some, a comeback by others. Judy herself, she she was sick of being the queen of comeback. Yet at the same time, she also claimed that with Mickey Deans, she had finally found love. They were married in 1969, and yet only a few months later, she passed away in London on June 22nd, shortly after turning 47. Judy suffered from exhaustion, kidney ailments, near fatal drug reactions, injuries suffered on falls, and nervous breakdowns from her addictions. Her death was ruled an accidental overdose from sleeping pills, though her daughter says differently. 
She let her guard down. She didn't die from an overdose. I think she just got tired, Liza Minnelli told Time in 1972. She lived like a taut wire. I don't think she ever looked for real happiness because she always thought happiness would mean the end. Judy was undoubtedly one of the greatest stars of Hollywood's golden film era. Movies such as Judy have been made about her. There's multiple books about her life and multiple documentaries as well. The song Over the Rainbow is even one of the top list of the greatest songs of the 20th century created by the National Endowment of the Arts and Recording Industry Association of America. Judy herself remains an enduring legend. Michael Feinstein claims it's because when Judy Garland sang a song, she lived it. She approached her songs with an intensity that was unusual in her time because many singers who were vocal soloists were band singers who did more homogenized presentations of songs, sometimes by order from the band leader and keeping with conventions at the time. Richard Glazier states it's because her music and her legacy are multi-generational that it speaks to us all. George Slatter, who produced the first five episodes of The Judy Garland Show, said that when she came on stage, it was an explosion. Richard Berrios, movie musical historian, says that it was her sincerity. Whatever the case might be, Judy Garland is, and I think always will be, a legend. But with all of that being said, that's where I'm going to end today's episode of Prism of the Past. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the recent episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure that you click on my Linktree link in the description box. It's going to have a nice organized list of all of my social media and projects that I'm involved in. Things like my Discord server, Twitch, and other channels. So thank you all for making it to another episode. I hope you learned something new today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.